Uh, I've been circling this particular Sunday only because I knew that I would be back in this particular chapter, 2 Kings chapter 5. And I know I'm a preacher, so this will probably not come as really genuine, but this is one of my favorite chapters. (laughs) You know, preachers always say that this chapter is my favorite chapter. And well, I have a lot of favorite chapters, (laughs) Um, but this one is especially one of my favorites. I love the way that this narrative is told, the way that the historian tells us the story of Naaman the leper and his miraculous healing from his leprosy. It's a passage that I've actually preached on before, and maybe you don't remember, it's, it feels like 10 years ago, but uh, back in the very first church picnic that we had where I was with you all, I was blessed to be able to preach from this particular passage, but it was amazing to come back to it, kind of study it from fresh. I, I, I didn't look at any of those old, old notes that I had written down, and it was amazing all the things that God was bringing up new to me in this passage, which... One of the things that struck me is just the fact that we often associate this passage, right, 2 Kings 5, with just that. Naaman and his leprosy and how he goes, spoiler alert, he goes into the water, he dunks as the prophet Elisha tells him, and he's healed from his leprosy. And we think of this story in that light. But it's interesting that his healing only is contained in one verse. That's all the space that the historian gives to the fact that this miracle occurs. Which I kind of think is just showing us that the historian would rather us focus on all the events building up to that moment and all the events afterwards. The the real story of the story of Naaman and his leprosy and the healing from it is not the healing. It's all the events around it. Focusing just on the healing would sort of just be like focusing on the prodigal son's repentance. Remember Luke 15, uh, the prodigal son comes back and he barely gets out his repentance speech before the father shows him such uh, amazing unbounded generosity and brings it back into the family. And the real story of the story of the prodigal son is actually the prodigal son's brother. But again, often uh, our focus is drawn to different things. Which is just to say that This story is very impactful. The story of Naaman and his leprosy. In my aim this morning, I'm going to walk through the whole chapter and we're going to be making applications as we go. So I have four points of application this morning, which I think will show us that bring bring to light the ways in which we misunderstand the grace of God. That's what I think this chapter sort of shows us. That God has given us such unmerited favor such as the song says amazing grace and so often we live misunderstanding it we live taking it for granted so to speak so that's basically the premise my my question this morning is if if this miracle occurs that occurs in this chapter is a portrait of God's grace given to those who don't deserve it which as I'll show hopefully uh, I definitely think that's the case How do we misunderstand it? How do we misapprehend it? And how do we misapply it? Well, let's find out through four little scenes, four points of application on just that very thing. The first way that I think we misunderstand or that we prove that we misunderstand. I think there's slides. I think I put them on the slides just so that you could see them and read them. But the first way that we... uh, Misunderstanding the grace of God is by assuming we have not carelessly forgotten it. By assuming that we have not carelessly forgotten it. 
I think this is one of the chief ways that we misunderstand grace is just by forgetting its presence in our lives. Right away, verse 1 of chapter 5, we're introduced to this man, Naaman, the captain of the host of Syria. He is a well-to-do man, a mighty man in valor, as it says. He's a great man, an honorable man. He is a man who, uh, who likes to hobnob with kings and very important people. He is a war hero. He is a legend of Syrian myth, we could say. He is a captain of the guard, a commander of men who has gone into battle and come back and told stories about it. The king has venerated him. The people of Syria look up to him. Naaman had it all. When you read this verse, Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, and all of the ways it describes him, that's what you have to see. Naaman is a man who seemingly had it all. He had success, he had status, he had position, he had prestige, he had power. He had it all except the last phrase, but he was a leper. Which is just the most fascinating way to introduce and describe this man. Because that phrase basically nullifies everything that came before it. He could have been a billionaire, which essentially he was. And yet, him being a leper negates everything that came before it. His might, his power, his prestige, all of that doesn't really mean anything anymore. It undoes it all. All of the acclaim that he garnered, all the attention, all the accolades that he receives. No one would have traded places with Naaman. No one was in Syria like, I want to be that guy. (laughs) He's a dead man walking. (laughs) He's a leper suffering from this condition from which there was no cure. There was no healing that was uh, able to be around. They just had to pray to their gods, pray to some sort of deity that there would be some divine miracle given to him. Otherwise, you just kind of have to hope for the best and ride it out. No one wanted to be Naaman. (laughs) No one wanted to trade places with him, which I think is a very fascinating point to understand, especially as we read one of his exploits in verse 2, as he and his men, they go out and they pillage and they plunder Israel. Verse number 2, and the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. This Poor, pitiful little Hebrew captive girl. She's one of the most interesting figures in all of the Old Testament. And we don't even know her name. Her life is absolutely wrecked. Understand that her life is absolutely destroyed in this moment. As she goes from living a normal life in Israel. To now serving as a forced slave in the house of her captor. Never to see her family again. Plopped into this foreign culture. And yet, despite all that we don't know about her, we do know something of her faith. We do know something of the idea that she has faith in this Yahweh and she's going to tell everyone she knows about it. Look at verse 3. And it says, And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. I think it's fascinating that this little girl sees serving in Naaman's wife's house. She's 
around her a lot, which means likely she's also in proximity to Naaman too. She's familiar with this captain and his pain, this disease, the, the ways in which she suffers on a daily basis. She's aware of all that. And rather than stay silent, rather than keep that information to herself, This idea that there's a prophet back in her home country who could possibly, probably, most definitely heal him from his disease. She shares it. I don't know about you. I would probably keep that to myself. (laughs) I don't want to heal my captor. Why would I want to give him uh, some sort of benefit? He just took me out of my home. His skin condition, she could have very justifiably thought, that's your punishment from God. I don't, I don't need to speak up on your behalf. And yet she does. She speaks up on behalf of the person who ruined her life. And she shares this news. There's a prophet back in my country. Who can heal you of your malady. And word eventually gets around. Verse number 4. All the way to the king, all the way to the king of Syria. And one went in and told his Lord saying, thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go to go and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him 10,000 or excuse me, 10 talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment. As a matter of perhaps we could say good foreign policy, <laughs> This king decides to write this letter to the king of Israel. Trying to inquire about how to get a word to this supposed prophetic healer. And how much he's going to cost. So they name and departs. He takes this letter in hand. And he goes to the court of the king of Israel. Who after reading this letter is absolutely devastated watch and he brought the letter to the king of Israel saying now when this letter is come unto thee behold I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy and it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes and said am I God to kill and to make alive that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy wherefore consider I pray you and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me (laughs) the king of Israel's first thought his first reaction to reading that letter is to assume that the Syrians they're just picking a fight I I can't do anything for this guy I don't know how to heal from leprosy. According to my laws, we have to oust him from the camp. I don't know what to do. This is an impossible task that you've given to me. You're just looking for war. You're just sniffing to make a war for some possible reason. It's telling, very telling to me that there is no thoughts in this king's mind of either A, seeking out Yahweh, the king, the true king, the true God of Israel. And neither is there any thought of going to Yahweh's prophet, Elisha. Isn't it fascinating that the, the leader of God's chosen people does not inquire of God's chosen prophet? His first reaction is just devastation. His first reaction is, I can't do it. What do you expect me to do? This king is so uh, unacquainted. So This, uh, I would say, is a very telling portrait of just how far Israel had, had devolved in their spirituality. 
with I think this king standing as sort of a representative of all of Israel's spiritual pulse. (laughs) Yes, there was a remnant in Israel, but by and large by this time, Israel was an idolatrous people whose hearts were basically scorched earth. They had no sort of feeling after the ways of Yahweh, no sort of interest after the ways of God, not even seeking the person of God, his representative, who at this time was Elisha. There was no thought given to that, no thought of God's power or presence. It was just, here's this thing, I can't do it, and now I'm devastated. He's rending his clothes, he's mourning. There was no... Trust, there was no belief, there was no faith. It's indicative of this entire nation of God's people and the very steep decline that they had endured that we've been noticing. All of the ways in which they had let idolatry creep in, Baal worship creep in and drag them down to where now there's not even a thought that this could be a moment where Yahweh could be useful. (laughs) And isn't that sometimes just like us? How often do we forget God's grace in our lives? I would say that's one thing that I think is sometimes perhaps something we might take offense to even suggesting. Because we're, we're quick to affirm that we believe in grace. We're quick to define what grace is. We're very, very fast about responding with, no, I definitely believe in grace. But I think we're even quicker than all of that to take it for granted. Because how often do we live? How often? You don't have to raise your hands or say all that. How often do we consciously live knowing that everything, everything that we have is a gift of grace? It doesn't come by anything that you have achieved or accomplished or sweated or poured out blood for. It it is all a gift of grace. And one of the chief reasons why Israel was so devastated in this time in history is because they had forgotten the grace that was shown to them by their very covenant God. They had forgotten his ways. They had forgotten his words. I think misunderstanding grace means forgetting just how much we need it, just how much we owe to it. Every single day is a gift of God's grace. We misunderstand it by carelessly forgetting it. Not waking up and going to our knees and thanking God. Thank you for another day. Another gift of grace that you have given to us. And to me this is what makes praying before meals. Kind of something we ought to do. I'm not saying it's indicative of your spirituality. But how often do you just thank God. For the bounty of his grace just by providing you with a meal. Providing you with perhaps friends to eat a meal with. It seems innocuous. And yes it kind of is. It's kind of just a small thing. It's just food. It's just McDonald's maybe. I don't know. Maybe you go to McDonald's. It's a small thing. But it's also a big thing. Because this is a gift of God's grace. He's given you the freedom and the liberty and the blessing to have a company of people to eat a meal around, to share food with, to share in fellowship with. What a comfort, what a grace. And how often do we sometimes forget that? I'm preaching to myself. 
Every single hour, every single second of every single day is a gift of the grace that God has given us. The second way I think that we misunderstand grace is by assuming we have the credibility to deserve it. By assuming we have the credibility to deserve it. That we have somewhere within us the qualifications that we can say, look, I deserve that. Notice verse number 8. Back in our text, Elisha, he hears word of this disagreement, this sort of event that has happened in the king's court. Where he's rending his clothes, he's mourning, he's crying, he, he doesn't know what to do. And so he says, send that guy to me. And when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman and all of his band of Brothers, so to speak, come to the door. They came with his horses and with his chariots and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And who do you think goes out to greet him? (laughs) Who do you think goes out to greet this very high and lofty and noble man of Syria? This very venerated, decorated war hero. None other than Elisha's servant. Verse number 10. Elisha sent his messenger unto him saying, Go. And wash in the Jordan seven times. And thy flesh shall come again to thee. And thou shalt be clean. And as you might imagine. Naaman doesn't like this. He's pretty upset. As it says in the King James. Naaman was wroth. Basically he was filled with rage. Filled with anger. And again we have to ponder why. Number one, he's, he's angry because this Israelite prophet didn't even have the decency to come out and greet him. You just sent your messenger, you just sent your little servant guy to come out and greet me. How dare you? Don't you know who I am? But he's also offended that this Israelite prophet has somehow prescribed just simply taking a bath in the Jordan. And that's how my healing is going to be accomplished? What are you talking about? <laughs> And notice, it's, it is all of Naaman's thinking. Notice verse number 11. But Naaman was wroth, and he went away, and he said, Behold, I thought, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. It's all about Naaman's expectations. What he expected he was going to get. He expected fanfare. He expected a show. He expected some sort of razzle-dazzle with smoke and lights and poof, you're healed from your leprosy. He expected something that he would be worthy of. And then he would be recovered. And that's why when he goes away, it's not just his expectations. It's his ego that have been successfully dashed by this little prophet. And he stomps away in verse 12. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the water of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He's stomping away like a toddler. (laughs) Throwing a tantrum. He's fuming. I I love this next scene. Verse number 13. And his servants came near and spake unto him. And said, My father... If the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou have not done it? 
How much rather than when he saith to thee, wash and be clean. (laughs) I wonder how long it took the servants to say something. (laughs) Again, this is their master. He's very much hot right now. He's very much fuming. He has a lot of rage and a lot of, we could say, unpent, uh, uh, or we could say, uh, uncorralled anger, we could say. He could do anything. He could fly off the handle. (laughs) And then one of them finally dares to speak up. (laughs) I imagine all the servants walking away, and they're all thinking it. They're all thinking the same thing. (laughs) That's pretty simple, uh, Captain. Shouldn't you just at least try what the guy said? Shouldn't you at least just see if it would work? I mean, it's just a simple thing. You just have to go take a bath in the water. (laughs) When you have jumped to do some great thing, I think this is so revealing of Naaman's heart and Naaman's mind. Again, he's the captain of the host of Syria. He's an honorable man, a mighty man of valor. He is a great man whose greatness is known throughout the empire and beyond. And a great man does great things. This is bathing in the rivers of the Jordan. This isn't a great feat. This is something that moms do with their little infants. It's just a simple little thing. This is not great enough. This is not mighty enough for someone like me. Naaman was a somebody. And he expected to be treated as such. He expected that his credibility would be worthy enough to get a cure that was enough to match his credibility. Or at least so he thought. He's mighty Captain Naaman. He was counting on his resume, on his qualifications. And when he's given the opposite, he goes away in a rage. And again, how often do we do the same thing? When it comes to God and the grace that he gives us in his son Jesus Christ, how often do we assume that we are credible enough to deserve it? And maybe we wouldn't say that because we're like, oh, It sounds really unbiblical, but how often do we live that way? How often do we live in a way that that, that sort of postures, look at all the credible things I'm doing. I'm very deserving of the grace that God has given me. This is essentially what, what put Jesus and the Pharisees at odds all throughout the Gospels. You can go read all their interactions. Jesus and the Pharisees, all their conversations. We're basically just about this. The Pharisees were going around brandishing how spiritual they were, how religious they were. They were making sure everyone knew they were great men who did great things for God. And they wanted everyone to know just how much better they were. They were mighty men of the Lord who knew the law, who knew all the intricacies of righteousness and how to be righteous people. When in actuality, what does Jesus say about them? That they were whited sepulchers, full of dead men's bones. They were spiritual lepers. They were dead men walking. They were posturing that they were great men, mighty men of valor in God's righteousness, when inside they were full of deadness. They were full of sin. They were full of unrighteousness. They were spiritual lepers. Even their credibility wasn't good enough. It wasn't credible enough. And I would say the same to each and every one of you this morning. As hard as it might be to hear. 
your credibility, your success, your impressiveness, however spiritual. It falls woefully short of deserving God's grace. Because there's no accomplishment that we can show God that's worthy of his favor. And yet we're dead set on trying that, aren't we? We're kind of stubborn in that way. At least I'll, I'll out myself. <laughs> there's checkpoints that I can meet. There's, there's little things that I can go to and say, look, look, I've met this standard. I can don't deserve it. Now, see, I've earned it. I've, I've gotten to the point where I deserve it. And don't, uh, this is the point that I preach to myself. Don't you see, Brad? That's the point of the gift. There is no deserving. Or else it would be a reward. And God's grace is not a reward given to those who deserve it. It's a gift given to those who deserve the opposite. That's the wonder of the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. It's not given to us because we've somehow deserved it by making ourselves credible, by making ourselves commendable in front of God. It's given to us because we don't deserve it. We deserve the opposite. We deserve something entirely different. And God says not that. He says, here is my son. He gives us the opposite. How is that Like our God. He treats us in grace. Even though we stomp away in a rage. We misunderstand grace by carelessly forgetting it. By assuming we have the credibility to deserve it. And number three, by assuming we have the capacity to earn it. Which is similar, but also distinctly different. Notice verse number 14. Because... Naaman eventually comes to his senses. He realizes what his servants are saying makes some sort of sense. And he goes down to the Jordan and he bathes there seven times just as the prophet says. And he comes out of the water and notice how it describes him. Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Like a baby's skin. The soft, smooth, unblemished skin of a newborn baby. That's what Naaman's skin was like. It was recovered. He was healed. And for some reason, I get this picture in my mind's eye. I don't know if it's true or not, but I I just have this picture in my mind's eye of Captain Naaman, gruff war hero, Captain Naaman, going down. And imagine the first, let's say, like three or four or five or maybe even all seven times, he was dipping in the water. He was doing it sort of like, you know, like your your five-year-old who does something but they don't really want to do. They're doing it grumpily. They're just doing it because you said so. They're not doing it out of a willing heart. He's dipping grumpily. And then after he comes out of the water the seventh time, and his skin is smooth as a baby's skin, I just get this picture of this captain, this captain of the host of Syria, almost playing in the water like a baby. And he's splashing around, gleefully, joyfully rejoicing in the fact that he's not just, his skin is not just healed, his life is healed. And imagine his servants looking down at this very decorated captain and noticing this amazing change. He gets out of the water and he makes straightway back to Elisha's house. And basically what happens is he's very intent on Elisha taking a blessing from him. Notice verse 15. And he returned to the man of God. 
He and all his company and came and stood before him and he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in Israel, or excuse me, no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. Essentially he's wanting to pay for this healing that he's just received and experienced. As if what was given to him without conditions must be reimbursed. But Elisha says no. Verse 16. But as he said, but he said, as the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he, Naaman, urged him to take it. But he, Elisha, refused. You cannot pay for this. You cannot pay for this and somehow settle the debts enough to where you can say you've deserved it. That you've earned it. You can see Elisha saying that you cannot pay for what I have given to you for free. And Naaman said, verse 17, shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth. For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself down there in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. He makes this very striking confession of faith in Yahweh. Which I think and I believe is truly genuine. He prays here. Hey, Elisha, okay, if you're not going to let me give you something, then can you let me have some of your dirt? <laughs> Basically, he says, I want to take two mules full of dirt back to my homeland so that when I go home, I can have some of Israel's holy ground with me. Because I want to worship Yahweh. Again, I, I think we can kind of excuse him for thinking that there was something magical about the dirt in Israel. He's a new, perhaps, convert into Yahweh. I just want to, I want to serve Yahweh. And he says, please forgive me. Because I already know, as part of my God, as part of my job, part of the gig that I have as captain of the host of Syria, I have to accompany my king into the temple of the house of Rimmon. But when I go there, he's he's already preempting. When I go there, it's just a formality. I'm not going there because I genuinely believe in this other God. I'm just going there to appease my master, appease my king. It's part of the gig. (laughs) He's saying, please forgive me for that. You can already see he is pledging fidelity to Yahweh above everyone else because he has been radically changed. And Elisha says, go in peace. Words which I imagine comforted him tremendously. There's a part of me that wants to excuse Naaman for wanting to compensate Elisha for his time. This is what you would normally do to spiritual healers or oracles of his own day, of his own country. It was a customary thing. He was acting according to custom. But even still, I think Naaman's immediate reaction to pay back Elisha is often our immediate reaction to grace. What do we often say when we receive something from someone? A gift. What do you often, what's your, almost your first thought when you get a gift from someone? How can I ever repay you? How, we immediately start thinking, I gotta, I gotta pay this person back. I gotta show them the return favor. I gotta make sure, I gotta, I gotta clear these things that we, you, you've given me a gift, but we often think you've actually given me a debt. <laughs> I gotta pay you back. I gotta, I gotta make sure to repay you in some way. 
As if by returning that kindness, we will somehow earn the original gift. (laughs) We get something, and by returning the same thing, it's like, okay, we've cleared what you originally gave me. (laughs) We're negating the point of the gift. (laughs) The gift wasn't given so the person could get something back. It was given for free without thoughts of reciprocity or payback or earning. As all true gifts should be given and that's exactly what grace is. It's given to each and every one of you without a thought of reciprocity or payback or that you must give it back. There's no fine print on God's grace which details the ways in which we must accompany it and must pay God back for it. Like the terms and conditions on anything that we buy. It's not like that. It's not that type of gift. And yet we often operate that way. I know I do. Because we're conditioned for earning. We operate in that mode. I have to earn things. It's going to be by my sweat, my blood, my merit, my tears, my achievements, my credibility, my accomplishment. And we believe that even when it comes to the things of God, that we have the capacity, we have the power to earn it. You and I. The bad news is this, but it's also the good news. You and I cannot earn what God has already given to us unconditionally. He's already given to us, given it to us unconditionally. (laughs) And the it is finished of the cross does not somehow morph into earn this after we're saved. Do you find yourself living that way sometimes? You believe in the gospel. It is finished. And then you start living as if I got to earn this. I got to earn this. The law is not your schoolmaster. Nor is Christ. Christ is the end of the law to those who believe, Paul says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My friends, it truly is finished. Period. It is grace all the way through. As the hymn says, grace has brought us safe thus far and grace will lead us home. Not our earning, not our deserving, not our credibility, not our merit, not our achieving. It's a gift given to us. A gift given for free with no conditions We misunderstand grace by assuming we have not carelessly forgotten it. By assuming we have the credibility to deserve it. By assuming we have the capacity to earn it. But most devastatingly, I think, that we have the capability to renegotiate it. That we have the ability to change change the way it is given. Because watch what happens. Naaman goes away, verse 19, he's told to go in peace. So he does. He leaves and he takes all of those potential things that he was going to give with him. And Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, starts to think. He starts to get a, some really good idea, at least in his mind. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Behold, my master hath spared Naaman, the Syrian, and not receiving in his hands that which he brought. But as the Lord liveth, I will run after him and take somewhat of him. You can see his logic. He was just going to give this away. 
So if he was just going to give this away, why can I have it for myself? No harm, no foul, right? Doesn't hurt anyone. So that's how he thinks. And he thinks that his master, Elisha, his point of mercy was in not making him pay. Notice he says, he spared Naaman by not making him give something back, so to speak. That was the mercy. So Gehazi runs after Naaman. Verse 21, so Gehazi followed after Naaman. And when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from his chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master hath sent me, saying, Behold, even now there come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of garments. He's already lying. Elisha didn't send him. He went of his own accord. And he's guilt-tripping Naaman into giving some money to this cause that he has made up. And Naaman does feel quite guilty. Verse 23, and Naaman said, be content, take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments. And laid them upon two of his servants. And they bear them before him. He goes over and above and beyond what Gehazi has come here asking for. Because he feels quite guilty. He's learning these new things about the faith. <laughs> to him, he, he felt like he should have given something. And here Gehazi is confirming it. You should have. Here's how you can allay your guilt. Here's a good cause to give to. So Naaman goes above and beyond. And I imagine Gehazi is feeling quite proud of himself. Naaman's whole and yet he is rich. <laughs> and he comes back home. And Elisha knows. He knows something's up. Look at verse 24. And when he came to the tower, he took them from their hand and bestowed them, the two servants that Naaman sent, in the house. And he let the men go, and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said unto him, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? And he said, Thy servant went no whither. Again, another lie. Where did you just come from? I just came from the other room. (laughs) And he said unto him, Wend not my heart with thee? When the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee, is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants? The leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. Hmm. I think we might at first be, at least when I first read this, I'm like, whoa, Elisha, that's pretty strict, man. <laughs> but I think, I think that shows us just how serious God is when it comes to his grace. <laughs> how dare someone think that they can change the way it's given, that they can renegotiate the terms of our acceptance with him. Because that's what Gehazi was trying to do. He's trying to change the terms of the deal. Yeah, it's free, but actually you do have to give something. You do have, you, you do have to earn it a little bit. You do give to this cause and it'll be good. Then he lies. He lies to, his, to this guy who is newly confessed into this faith system. And he lies to his prophet. Which I think, again, here, this devastating ending shows us just this. That anyone who thinks... 
That they can add or change or alter the conditions of the way that God saves us are opening themselves up to judgment. That's what's happening here. He's trying to change the way in which the salvation was wrought in the life of Naaman. But we don't have that capacity. We can't change the deal. Again, what does the scripture say? It is finished. It's done. Your salvation is already won. You cannot go and renege on that offer. You cannot go and try and change some of the terms to make it a little bit easier for you or a little bit better for you. Actually, it's already good. I think sometimes we're so stunned and so scared of this idea of free grace that we, like a hezzy, run after ways to couch it. We run after ways. We gotta, we gotta hem it back in. We gotta ring it back in. Too free. What are we gonna do? So we start adding ands. You gotta believe and. Anytime an and is added to what Jesus gives us, we lose sight of Jesus. Anytime something comes on, on the end of that word, grace, uh, eventually grace is gonna be dissolved and it's gonna be forgotten. There's grace all the way. We don't have the ability to change it. We don't have the ability to deserve it. We don't have the ability to earn it. It is free, given to us in the Son of Jesus. That's God's offer. That's the offer on the table for every single one of us, every single day. An offer that is never going to be rescinded. God is not an Indian giver. He doesn't give and then sweep the rug out from under us. It's given. Here's my son hanging on a tree for you. The offer is final. You can't go and change that. You can't go and try and change the way your salvation was won. It's through Christ and his blood. It is finished, my friends. What a rallying cry for the church. It's a rallying cry for grace. Grace unbounded and free. And it's this offer that the Son, as Paul says, he refers to Jesus as God's unspeakable gift. He takes our leprosy, he takes our sins. And he washes them away in his gracious death and resurrection. That's the offer. That's the good news. The good news to every sinner in every single space in this room. In every single church around the world. That's the good news. And all that is required. Wash and be clean. Or we could say. Look and live. Repent and believe. It's the same principle. The requirements, we like to make them complex. We like to make them difficult. Again, we like to do some great thing. And God says, just wash and be clean. Here's my gift. It is given to you. Here's my son. He bled out for you. Do you believe this morning? Are you trying to earn what God has given you? My friend, you are putting yourself under a burden that you are not meant to bear and you cannot bear. And eventually it's going to crush you. What does God say? Take my yoke upon you for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. 
The religion that Jesus comes and invites us to be a part of is not a religion of overbearing despair. It's a religion of freedom and deliverance precisely because of this gift that is given to us. It's the gift of grace. My friends, may that be our rallying cry. Grace, so amazing, so free. Let us pray.